What do you do when your racist cousin says something racist? Not allowed in my house. Not allowed in my house. Not allowed in my house. No way. Okay. My house, my rules. My grandfather was racist. When we would watch football and people of particular color would be running down the field, he would cheer for them using the not nice words. Uh, how do you deal with racism, especially when it comes from a member of your own family or from somebody really close to you at work or in the country club? Or what do you do when you hear a racist comment? Do you remain silent or do you express yourself, speak up? How do you communicate? Today, we're going to talk with my friend, Dr. David Comp. I call him the race doctor, but he's also known as the dialogue guy. But he goes into corporate offices in all kinds of different situations, helping people communicate about the difficult topic of race and racism. I loved it. This was new material for me. Very lighthearted and yet really great at teaching us all to be allies. Here's one thing to remember. Racism is a very serious topic. And it's okay to have fun while we're learning to deal with it. Can you tell me a story about that? A brief one? Um, I'm not sure I've ever done it. <laughs> <laughs> it's row time. Welcome to Rolanda On Demand. I love my podcast because we not only tackle the tough issues of the day, but we deal with hot topics, celebrity interviews, and information that can help you in your business or relationships. This is Rolanda On Demand. David, it is so good to talk with you again. You know you are my favorite. I ha- I peg you adoringly the race doctor because you're healing so many people in this nation. You've really taken this whole ally toolkit to a whole new level. I mean, Trevor Noah, yeah, come on. Well, well I mean, I, I appreciate that. And uh, it's great to be back with you again. By the way, even though I used to be the race doctor, still am, my... A handle now on Twitter is uh, the dialogue guy, so I've a slight broadened that. But you know, I obviously I know a lot about racial issues, and part of the reason that this whole thing of Trevor Noah happened is because I realized a couple of years ago that we really need to shift the conversation or expand it, not just between people of color and white folks, but among white folks, because that's on some level that's where the real divisions about race are. And so I'm really glad that the Daily Show recognized that that's an important conversation. Yes, they called me the white people whisperer, which I think is hilarious. Uh, uh, but I've been going around the country giving uh, workshops that are practical and enjoyable. I think race work doesn't have to be painful, but it, it needs to be useful to get people to have better conversations with their mamas and their cousins and their coworkers, et cetera, because you know, we need to talk about these issues in order to move forward. Well, you know, I find it so refreshing as a black person who has tons of white friends and black friends of all kinds of ilks. But I do find that particularly my white friends have a tough time talking about it, even among themselves. And I find that I have seen white families that have couldn't even sit down this holiday together because of the Trump situation or the race situation or the Black Lives Matter situation. It's such a volatile push button gasoline on the fire issue that what either happens is you either end up killing each other or you don't talk about it at all. Exactly. And so one of the one of the slogans from this project is don't confront, don't avoid, but engage smartly. And that's what we try to teach people how to do. I, I think that, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for what you just said. I think that we all want to distance ourselves from the historical wound of race in our country. And 
but we don't know how to really grapple with it. And so when people are on opposite sides of how they look at that, they don't know, they, 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 on some level they recognize we can't talk about it. They don't talk about it. Or some people want to confront other people and that doesn't move the needle. And so, you know, given that we have been attacked by the Russians for our level of, uh, we've been attacked because we're so divided. It's really time for us to figure out how do we start talking about things that are hard to talk about so that they can't do that to us again. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can use the fact that we were attacked for being uh, because we're divided and they try to divide us further and we're successful in doing that. I'm hoping we can, you know, you know, how in those, in those uh, movies like Independence Day, um, like when the, when the aliens are coming, people bond together. Well, I'm hoping that now that we have been attacked as a nation for being divided, we can recognize that we have to work on these divisions. And yes, I think it is white folks who are even more divided in some level. And so that's why the focus of the project is on helping white people talk to each other. I love the name of the project. The project. The, the, what, what is it, the ally tool? The white people ally toolkit. Is that what? It is? <laughs> well, it really, it, uh, the, the the core name is called the white ally toolkit. But sometimes there's some settings in which um, uh, calling it white makes people uncomfortable. Like I've had some corporate clients, and I also call it the ally conversation toolkit because it is about allies having a conversation. And you notice what's what's the acronym of the ally conversation toolkit? That would be ACT, right? Because part of what part of what uh, we're trying to teach people to do is that we don't have to just lament these racial issues, but we can take action. And the action can happen in the next conversation you have with somebody who looks at things differently than you. Well, what I like about what you're saying here, you know, I think in the women's movement, the whole Me Too movement, one of the things that we're calling on is our brothers who support us. You know, I've had guys say to me, I'm joining the movement too, and not just for my daughters, for my sons. But but it's also what we're calling our brothers who support the movement are our allies. And I think that one of the things that that is the worst thing you can do when you see especially racial injustice is to sit there and not say anything, even though your heart is beating for the truth. And when you take that action, like you said, you become an ally. You don't, you know, you're, you're not, you're educating, not aggravating is what I always say. No, that's, that's right. And so, but part of, but part of what that is requires is for allies have to be, have to, they have to be centered and they have to be smart. And so part of what we try to teach people um, in the uh, in the White Ally Toolkit or the Ally Conversation Toolkit, and both of those are it's the same website, AllyConversationToolkit.com and WhiteAllyToolkit.com is the same place. What we try to teach people to do is a method of engaging conversation a different way. And uh, that method, by the way, is called the RACE method, which stands for Reflect, Ask, Connect, Expand. And basically the idea is you got to get centered first. That's what the reflect. Now, you give gotta, me an example. Give me, give me an, an example where, where somebody sure. can buy. And I sure. love how it's the race thing. But right. race, I like the way you said that because when you get into those knee-jerk trigger reactions, it, to have something to ground yourself on, because a lot of people just don't know what to do, but this is a great right. formula. So give me an example. We're at work, and what happens? Right. You're at work, and somebody says, um, you know, I think that... Uh, that we need, we, we, we don't need to focus so much on diversity. I think we're getting, we're, 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 we're hiring people who don't really deserve uh, the job. I think that we, we all this talk about uh, white privilege and unconscious bias, I think is a, is something just to make um, some folks nervous. And it's just a reaction to political correctness. And we need to just focus on quality. Somebody, somebody says that. 
right? Yeah, but, yeah. And, and David, because you also point out that about 50% of white people don't believe there really is a race issue. Well, yes. I mean, to be very precise, 50, 55% of white folks, according to two different polls, one by Washington Post and one by NPR, think that racism against white people is just as significant as, as a national problem as racism against people of color. And so even though only 19% of that 55% have ever claimed to have seen it, that's what, that, that is, the, all 55% think that. And so as long as that's true, it's going to be difficult for us to advance um, equity initiatives within companies or in society, as long as 55% of white folks don't think racism against people of color is a significant problem. Basically, those 55% think racism is like it's like sin or disease or, or depression is some sort of a general problem instead of a particular problem affecting companies and affecting the nation in a particular way. Well, so, they thought that about the Holocaust, too. Well, I mean, they're, 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 thank God, I think there are fewer Holocaust deniers than, than that. But yes, the, the, the tendency of us to look away from right. difficult problems, I mean, that's a, that's a human tendency. But sometimes that accumulates so much that we have a collective problem. And so this project, the, the White Ally Toolkit, um, is this, pro this project is dedicated to moving that number from 55% of white folks who don't think racism is basically is an issue uh, now to 45% by 2025. So we have a specific goal. And the way to accomplish that goal, that that's not going to happen through lecturing people or calling them racist or ignoring the problem. That's going to happen if tens of millions of good-hearted white people who think racism is real have more effective empathy-based, compassion-based conversations with people in their circle. And so we're trying to teach a mechanism to remember what that is and to actually do that. And that's what the race method is about. Wow. And, and, and so we're, we're about to break down what race and the acronym means as a good tool of reaction. Um, okay, so we're in that board meeting or in that meeting with the boss and somebody says, hey, listen, we don't think diversity really means that much. We don't, we don't believe we need to spend our dollars and our attention there. That's just something people are just using as a little ploy to, to get us all riled up. What do you say in that situation when you know... Well, there's a couple. There's a couple. Let's go through the method. I'll try to this quickly. So the first thing you got to do is to ref, uh, is to reflect. You got to just stop for a second, take a deep breath, remember what. Like you, hopefully, you have prepared for this conversation because try to reflect. The reflect step is even before these conversations happen, you get ready for them. We know in our workshops, um, we ask people what are the what are the things that white these are all these are primarily white people. We say what are the things that white people say that really you like better um, handles on dealing with. And people will often say, well, can I only submit one that people have a whole bunch of them, right? Because this, this is part of where our society is now. So if you know what these things are, you can prepare for that in advance. So in advance, you can think about, okay, what do I need to do in the moment to calm myself down? So some people, they think of, they, they, they take deep breaths. And some people think of the uh, most relaxing place that they've been to. I mean, people, people train themselves, okay, how do I calm down? And that's a good thing to have in your toolkit anyway. So, so, so in the moment you do, you, you, okay, wait, well, I'm, I'm in a race conversation. Let me, let me do the reflect step. So they do whatever they've thought of in advance to do. The okay. I'm <laughs> now. now then ask. So as opposed to attacking somebody and telling them they're wrong, um, you say, okay, so huh, that's interesting that you think that tell me, tell me, um, something that happened that makes you think that what you're trying to do, your, your fundamental strategy is to try to shift the conversation from an opinion conversation to an experience conversation. 
that's the fundamental that's the fundamental shift that you're trying Ooh, to do. Say, to, that, say at, that one more time. That was good. You're trying to shift the conversation from an opinion conversation to an experience conversation. So instead of just saying, um, "Well, why, why do you th- why do you think that?" Give me some data on that. You say so it's closer to oh, that's an interesting way of looking at that. Tell me an experience you had that makes you think that all of this uh, all this push for unconscious bias and diversity is just trying to make you nervous. Like, tell me an experience. So basically, you're trying to go beneath their opinion to the experiences that drive their opinion. Wow, so that's you- good. And we'll be right back with more tactics from Dr. David, the Dialogue Guy, as he talks with us about his White Ally Toolkit or his Ally Conversation Toolkit, making changes in conversations across America. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Bold Radio, it's Rolanda. They are saying this is a major public health issue that's facing American children. How we use all of this technology around us, not as babysitters, not an electronic babysitter, but how we interact with our kids while they're interacting with the media. I mean, gosh, I've been in TV, radio now, and we get blamed for everything, don't we? But it's like saying the refrigerator made me fat. You can't do that. There's more Rolanda next. Talk, listen, connect. Thank you so much for listening to Rolanda On Demand. Please remember to subscribe and please rate and review the podcast as well. I'd love to know what you think. And please let me know some of the topics that you'd like to talk about. You can email me at Rolanda at Rolanda.com. That's R-O-L-O-N-D-A, Rolanda at Rolanda.com. And be sure and follow me on social media at Rolanda Watts at Facebook and Twitter and IG and LinkedIn and at Rolanda Watts channel on YouTube. Also, be sure to sign up for my free webinars. Go to my Facebook page and check them out as we talk about the art of reinvention. But first, let's get back to our show. You're trying to, you're trying to turn it to do what, what you do as an actress and as a comedian. You, t- you try to get into a storytelling mode. And what happens is, one, there's a, several reasons for doing that. One reason is because uh, when people are telling stories to each other, they're firing up something in our heads called mirror neurons, which is a part of our brain. You know, the, the reason we cry at movies or the reason that we laugh and other people laugh or yawn and other people yawn, because a part of our brain that is connected to other people's experiences. And so when people are telling us stories, we're more likely to feel connected to them. So that's one reason for telling it. Another reason for telling a story is because moving people to storytelling is because Sometimes if people tell you a story about why they believe, they, even in con- constructing the story, they realize, oh, they could have come to different conclusions. That doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. You probably have seen that. So you shift the conversation from opinion to the experiences beneath the opinion. So that's the ask step. Now, hopefully you can, the reason that you, you do that and you listen to that, listen empathetically, and you can do that because what have you done? You remember you centered yourself. You reflected first. So you're in a mode of listening. And then you ask. And then then the, the next step, the next step is connect, right? So remember, it's reflect, ask, connect, expand. Connect is basically you try to find something you can agree with before you try to find something you can disagree with. So basically, people, uh, when, you, when, you t- when you lead a conversation with you're wrong, you fire up people's defensiveness and you make them, you turn yourself into the enemy they're trying to oppose. Your objective in your next step of the conversation is to try to find at least something 
in what they said that you agree with, even if you don't agree with the core of their point. And so David, you might, isn't, that, isn't that where what we need so much in this world, I believe? Isn't that where the empathy comes in when we start to connect, especially on stories? I mean, because it's, it just gets back down to the, the least common denominator of the human experience. Right. Well, that's true. The, the empathy is what drives you to do it. But you still so that so that you are correct. Like, like part of the, the reflect step is to uh, gin up your empathy. Part of what, what people have told us. Uh, remember, I said there are techniques for um, in the reflect step. Some people have said the, re- the reason what I do when I realize I'm in one of these conversations is that I imagine the other person as a five year old taking a bath. So some people call that the naked child strategy, right? So you basically envision this is a vulnerable human being who at one point was just an adorable kid and envisioning that can help you gin up your empathy for that person. So that becomes... That's that's a lot better than what I was taught was to envision him in his underwear. (laughs) Like everybody puts their pants on the same that doesn't, that doesn't drive us. I think that that's, that's useful when you're like, a, I've heard that too, as a speech maker to try to make yourself, to, to make them vulnerable, but and to make yourself feel confident. But when you're trying to empathize with them, then that's a, that's a slightly different, a slightly different mental image that you need. Right. Of, not as them as an overweight person in their underwear, but rather as a, as a, and, and, and there are other techniques too. I'm not, I don't want to emphasize the naked kid strategy. I'm just saying that some people have told us that the way that they, can calm down and get centered and connect with their empathy, which becomes the driver for listening, is to do some technique like that. So yes, so you gin up your empathy, but what you do in the in the ask step, uh, where you 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 ask and your empathy helps you listen and not try to reject what they say, but try to listen for it. But then, but also the empathy is important as you try to connect with them, and to connect with them means you tell them a story that illustrates. Um, that animates your belief in whatever part of the thing that they said. So, for example, if they said the, 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 the example we talked about, um, they they talk about the, the, the importance of uh, uh, quality and the, the way that all this unconscious bias stuff makes them a little uncomfortable. Well, even if you believe unconscious bias is real, it does make your life more complex. So you might say, well, you know, I understand what you're saying about that unconscious, unconscious bias thing. Because when I hear that, I know that when I if I had to think about, like, what is my real motivation? I become I become a little more self conscious. So I can I I and you might tell an example of that. And and you say so I understand how it makes you feel a little uncomfortable because it makes you feel a little uncomfortable too. So what have you done? You've not you you've said you haven't said no you're wrong. You've said well you know I can I, you're right about something. I agree with you somewhat. And what that does is to make you not their enemy. Right, psychologically, it makes you not their enemy because when people when people perceive you as an enemy, a part of your brain that gets fired up uh, when you're in a fight or flight mode that gets fired up when people when people disagree um, when you demonstrate to people you disagree on fundamental issues. That same part of the brain gets fired up. You want to tamp that down by becoming on their side, at least about something. So you tell a story about how you feel you can you agree with a piece of what they said. So now you're on the same page. And they're taking your experience seriously. And then you tell an experience, not a, not necessarily facts, an experience that uh, comports with your point of view. That's the expand stuff. So you try to expand their thinking. But wait so a minute, might, I, like, I like the point you're bringing up there. You don't have to say, well, statistics say, and Trump said, and this one said. No, you just say, hey, look, and, and expand on it from a human experience. That's right. There's, there's something called the backfire effect, which you can, which, which can, you can look it up. And the backfire effect 
is um, basically it documents the fact that when people are confronted with facts that oppose their point of view, they basically ignore the facts, declare them as fake news, and double down on their point of view. Oh, That's we've just, seen that. We've seen that a lot. We've, we've seen that a lot. So what you what you don't want to do is to try to fight them with facts. But what you what you want to do after you've after you've established that your experiences matter to the conversation. Remember what you've done. You've asked them for their experiences, so their experience matter. Then you've told them your experience. So then you so so and that aligns with them. So now your experience matters. So it is after after both of those steps that you tell them an experience that tends to challenge their point of view. Because now what have you done? You've you fight up the mirror neurons. You've not become the enemy, and now and you and you've established that your experiences are something that they should take seriously in terms of the, your pursuit of the truth. And so then you tell them a story about the fact that, uh, for example, in this particular case, you tell them a story about how even though you, the unconscious bias idea makes you a little more self-conscious, you had some experience where you recognize that, you know, some some black guy, and I'm, I'm, this, is, this is an actual story that somebody told me. Some black guy told us, uh, um, gave a presentation at work, and this white dude was talking about how he goes, huh, that guy's pretty smart. And then he recognized that he doesn't say that around to other, well, he doesn't think about that to white people. Wait, wait, because, wait, exactly, wait a minute, like, oh, you're so articulate. <laughs> well, that, that, that's what they, right, but, that, but even if you don't say that, what what he what he was talking about that there's that, but he's also talking about even just thinking. Oh, this black guy's really smart and articulate, and as if, as if it's a surprise to him, and he recognizes that when other when white people make the same quality presentation, he doesn't do that, right? So he recognized that he has a kind of an unconscious bias that gets fired up. Then and this I mean this guy is a you know he's a super liberal guy. He he's a pastor, so he he's not somebody who is walking around with uh, white sheets on, but he recognizes that he sometimes has these thoughts. And so notice but isn't, that, but isn't that where we are right now, David? Don't you believe that? Because I think, you know, the, one of the wonderful things I love about the Museum of Tolerance here in Los Angeles is when you walk into it, there are two big old doors in the foyer. One says prejudice, and the other one says not prejudice. And, you know, the tour guide gives the whole welcome speech and then says, you choose which door fits you to go in. And the door that says not prejudice is locked. Nobody gets through that door. So I think that there's a conscious decision to recognize and be self-aware of our unconscious bias. All of us have them. Right. But but I think that that, that an important next phase conversation is is about that. So part of, um, in in the project, um, uh, part of what we try to teach people is the most fundamental issue that people that white folks are talking about with each other is the unconscious bias question because right. that that's the that even though you know, unearned racial advantage I don't tend to call it white privilege because I think that term triggers people that so that that's important uh, the issue of people of color being perceived as lazy by the way like a third of white folks will tell anonymous surveyor they think black people are lazier so th- those are all you know the issue around. Black people shouldn't protest the police because everybody knows that police treat people fairly. That's another issue. All of these are outlined in our in a workbook, and we give explicit guidance in the White Ally Toolkit workbook about how to deal with those. But of all of those issues, the most fundamental issue is unconscious bias. And so we don't. If so, if, if white folks can learn to talk about that with each other in a way that's not defensive and not attacking, but is courageous and brave and invites people to uh, see this in themselves by 
expressing how they have this sometimes, then we're going to move forward in a much different way than we have been. So, and that, that's the kind of conversation that is most effectively had between white people because people of color tend to uh, uh, make white people more defensive to talk about these issues because of something called racial anxiety, which is, a, which is the nervousness that people have in a cross-racial encounter. So one of the reasons why this project has been successful is because people recognize that um, in order to have the most the highest quality of a certain type of conversation, it's got to be, you got to lower the defensiveness, and doing that means white people got to talk to each other. Right. Now, what do black folks have to do? Well, um, that's an interesting question. And I can't wait to hear the answer right after this on Rolanda On Demand. Bold Radio, it's Rolanda. Make the list of your dreams. Mm. Are you into the list thing? I'm always thinking about what I'm grateful for. I did categories. So I did finances. I did health and fitness. I did family. And what do you put in those categories? So, for example, in health and fitness, I want to continue to work out at least three days a week. Did you read my list? (laughs) There's more Rolanda next. Talk, listen, connect. So one of the reasons why this project has been successful is because people recognize that um, in order to have the most the highest quality of a certain type of conversation, it's got to be, you got to lower the defensiveness, and doing that means white people got to talk to each other. Right. Now, what do black folks have to do? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things that I am still sorting out is the issue of uh, what is black folks' level of collusion with white people's silence about this issue? I did some surveying in Martha's Vineyard. Um, uh, I did about 70 or 80 surveys in August. And there's a fair amount of black people who, like, even if you look at their closest white friend, they do not talk to their closest white friend about the issues of racism in their own lives that they're confronting. And they don't talk to that white friend about what that white friend is doing in all white settings. Mm. They just they just avoid the issue. And there's a certain way in which that colludes with the silence of the uh, that the, the, the white people have in their own settings because they're not. Uh, um, some of those people, by the way, they expect those white people to really be aggressive and and uh, and and be energetic, but they don't they don't to provide them with stories of racism from their own lives. And they don't have an honest conversation about that. They just expect that. And so I think there's a way in which uh, people of color have to be more honest with the people. You know, most people of color have the the sort of a couple of close white friends. I mean, you know, our our lives are very racially segregated in this country. And that's unfortunate. But as long as that's still true, I mean, thank God it's not as true as it used to be. Right. So so part of what we have to start doing is being honest about the racism that we are confronting, the subtle racism, sometimes we don't want to deal, we don't want to talk to our friends about it because we're worried about their response to it. We don't want to, we, we don't want to have them question us. We don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation. We don't want to be confronted with the fact that they don't understand these issues. We rather just talk about the football game or talk about the Oscars or talk about whatever because we're uncomfortable confronting, uh, uh, talking about this difficult part of American life, of our own lives. So, so part of what we do is, I think, collude in that and that's that doesn't help the ball move the ball forward either. No, I had a very, I, you know, I always uh, I'm I was only black in my high school is back in the seventies, and I will never forget this was even in the seventies. Okay, my all girls school was having a dance with the boys school, and they were having it at a country club, 
and the country club didn't allow blacks or Jews. And I remember my girlfriends whose fathers were big attorneys for R.J. Reynolds at Winston-Salem and all of that stuff, you know, but they, they put their foot down and they said, we will not go, we will, we will shut down this, this party if Rolanda can't go. And I just remember, and, and I just, every time I see those women, you know, 40 some years later, I will never forget those little girls who stood up for me. And I just hope that, that, that while we go to work or we go to wherever we do as adults and, and grapple with this and use the race method that you've taught us, that we're teaching our children to do that too. Did, are you seeing any kind of, you know, there's such a strange coding on this nation right now. And what are you seeing among younger people, the millennials and you know, are, are, are they having the same struggles that adults are in this, this, this climate? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, I, I think there's a, generally speaking, a higher level of what might be called racial literacy among the younger generations of white folks. So, you know, the time marches forward so that that's, that's good. Um, and, you know, and, and of course, there is also, um, you know, it's in, it's in universal, you see, you know, it's not hard to go on social media and find stories of, uh, you know, young white people doing the same kind of, you know, putting putting Nazi signs up or nooses or whatever. That still happens, although thankfully less, you know, it happens more than it happened four years ago, but less than it happened uh, 40 years ago. Right. right. So uh, so there's so there's ups and downs in that. And the general matter, uh, the, the young white folks are uh, uh, the young folks are at a higher level, but I, but the level of social segregation is still really high. The level of separation is still really high. And so um, I think we need to be just as vigilant with trying to get people to have this conversation uh, right. with young people as we do with uh, people who are older. I find that writing my book, Destiny Lingers, which is an interracial romance story, it was my way of talking about race relations, having, you know, I'm in my 50s, so you know, I'm one of the last generations that remembers actually having to drink colored water. And I don't mean Kool-Aid and Gatorade, you know, right. and not being allowed to go places and, you know, having something pinned on your shirt that said you can't go to the park with the other kids because you're black and they don't allow blacks. And shit just. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, yeah. That was real for me. Very real. And so um, the, the, those are real stories that people don't know. And I wanted younger people to understand that, you know, while they can love anybody they want, green, yellow, pink, LBGTQ from whatever nation, that wasn't that long ago, you'd be swinging from a tree where I came from. Pulling no, 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 I agree with you. One of the things that is one of the goals, I mean, I, you know, I have big aspirations with this project as I described and, and, um, I hope people check out the website and, for that matter, check out. We're doing a Kickstarter to try to raise uh, to, to try to raise some money to, to produce an immersive video to replicate the um, to replicate the workshops that we do around the country. But part of my goals beyond this project is uh, to do to do a large archive of just those type of stories. As you may know, in the 30s, the Smithsonian gathered like 3,000 slave narratives before the slaves died because they recognized that that was an important part of American history and the recording technology was just being invented. Well, now we have recording technology everybody walks around with. And the generation of people who remember what you're talking about right. is also, you know, we're getting older too. And yeah. so I, I, so what is my, um, what, what, I hope, what I hope Rolanda is on my posthumous Wikipedia page is that I was involved in the creation of an archive of these type of stories about the color line. I think that there was a big, there was a big shift. I, I think in um, in about nineteen in the eighties, I think, um, and in particular, 
and here's an example of something that a lot of people don't talk about. But I, but, um, I think the reason I think the big shift happened in the 80s is because and I think that is because we no longer have the spontaneously forming white mob that kills people. Right. We like if, if, if you. Uh, if so you you're saying remember, the fear factor was down because because you're right, because I do remember in the 60s and the 70s when I started dating and stuff. It was like you th- that was the biggest fear that you would fall in love with a white boy and end up dead or raped. You know, in the, in the 80s, in the 80s in New York City, there were three different times in the 80s where a spontaneously forming white mob killed a black man in, in, New, in the confines of New York City in the 80s. Well, wait so, a minute. You had Bernie Getz who took, off, who took down about three or four young black men with a screwdriver and a gun. You know? Right, but that's, that's the, the, you always get hate crimes like that. But right. I'm talking about a mob. You know, I, that I, mob. I, when I'm, I'm, I'm making a distinction between, I mean, you, you do get random hate crimes. You still, you still get that. But I'm talking about where people who don't, white folks who don't know each other get together, uh, like, they, they, like some, some incident happens and then I, somebody has a beef with a black person and then other white people who don't know that white person join in. And that becomes a mob. And what I'm saying is, is that white folks no longer do that. And I think that part of what we have to, part of, we can, we can celebrate that. And I, I, one of the things that happens is that I think black folks, well, some of them haven't made an adjustment around that. We don't, there's a certain level of racial progress we don't like to acknowledge. And, and the reason I talk about the spontaneously forming white mob is because that's such a visceral thing. Like, I remember that when I was, I was, I lived in the 80s. I lived in New York City in the 80s as an adult. And so, and I remember both, both in New York City and other places, there are places you could not go. It wasn't safe to go. Well, that, Howard Howard Beach was one of them. I mean, you know, we had the what was the poor little boy would run run from the mob and got struck in the middle of the highway and caused all of New York City to go nuts. Uh, Michael Burks, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. So, that, yeah. That's it. so that that is exactly that's one of those incidents I'm, incidents I'm talking about. And what I'm saying is, is that we um, one of the psychological adjustments I think Black folks need to make is that there's been a, there's been some progress despite the setbacks and despite all the stuff with the police and that's a real thing i'm more afraid of police now than i was in the past right. but i'm not as a, i'm not afraid of spontaneously forming white mob because that don't no longer exists white folks have stopped doing that and so what i'm saying is is that what we part of our work as black people is to make an adjustment to recognize that there's certain things that are in fact better john i was in a room with john lewis one time uh on a congressional pilgrimage and he said the only thing worse than white people who think that every, everything has changed is black people who think that nothing has changed. And so part of what I think we have to do nice. is nice. to recognize that there has been, racism isn't just transformed. It actually is better. It still isn't. We're still in a great situation. It actually is better. We need to start talking about that and being honest about that. Um, so that's part of the work of black folk. But what I'm saying is that we, um, if we're really going to talk, look at our race situation honestly, we still got to talk about the fact that, as I said, like a third of white people think that black people are uh, lazier than white people. Thirty-eight percent of, of of white people think that black people are less evolved. Like they saw so in the survey, like they they show like the the fish to the frog to the monk to the, and then they say are black people less evolved than white people? And thirty-eight percent of white folks will say yes, black people are less evolved. So as long as those, as long as a subsizable portion of white folks have that opinion, we, we, we're going to have trouble moving the racial ball forward. And so the way to, I think one way to address that 
is the is the people who are not in that number, like trying to have an honest, non-blaming conversation about about issues like that. And exactly. And I, and, I, and I like what you just said there, the non-blame. That's what the point I was going to make with my book is that when I went out and talked about race issues through this novel, through art and a love story, it was a lot easier to talk about our experiences. And just like you said, telling stories really helped do that. I also believe that it's just not white folks, our white allies. It's black folks that need to reflect and ask and connect and expand too. And I, and I love that whole exercise. So I like that. So ally conversation toolkit. I really like that and using the word ally like a friend or your greatest friend if you were in war. But mm-hmm. it, it stands for act. I got it. And, and action is the thing. I think that what we're trying to say here in the takeaway is if you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. Um, and just sitting back, being quiet and letting the uncles and, and everybody around the dinner table fight it out, and the people at work fight it out, and you not be a part of the, the solution uh, is a problem in just, itself. Just avoid it, right? I mean, or, or part of it is avoiding. Like, you know, how many times, I mean, of course, I've, as I say in my workshops, I have never been around white people when it wasn't a black person there. So I've never been in an all white conversation. Right. But <laughs> I know that. You know, all these issues we see with, you know, um, with patio, patty and um, hallway, Hank and all that, like people are seeing this stuff. It's, 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 it's part of the common, sadly, part of what's happening in our culture now. So our, you know, my hope is that white folks with an ally or equity mindset can kind of like say, OK, let's talk about this, can use this as a jumping off point to talk about unconscious bias and residual isms, the racism that still exists, but you have to do that with some skill. You can't, if you, if you're ready, if you look at that as an opportunity to attack somebody that they don't want to talk to you again. I, in, in my workshops, I define an effective encounter around race is one in which the ally gets to be themselves for all a part of the conversation. And then the other person leaves the conversation with at least some interest in talking to them about this again. And so many, so many folk who claim to be woke, or I check. I know how to check my privilege. They don't know how to create effective encounters. And part of this this whole project is about how do you do that. And the reason, one reason why it's important is because in the context of an institutional context, and where you know, because I know people listening to this might be, you know, they they are in the corporate environment. If we're really going to move the uh, the racial equity conversation institutionally forward, like yes, we need policies from the top. But we also need better conversations from one person to another because you get resistance to these things that, and the resistance becomes, you know, it becomes subtle and people, you know, they nod their head at the meeting, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But, and so you need to create a culture where people are talking about this in an honest way in one-on-one settings outside of the glare of the big workshop. So we have to empower us to change our cultures so that people have that skill. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else that you want to say, um, just in terms of where we are as a nation right now? Or do you, I mean, I, I can only imagine that someone like you who is so committed to the vision of, of empathetic human beings in the workplace <laughs> and elsewhere, I guess you see hope in this nation. Sure. Well, uh, like, like I said, I think that the fact that we um, recognize you know, we, we have big congressional committees, which uh, and the and the FBI and and parts of government who have concluded that we have been attacked by our enemies 
who are trying to sow more division and they've taken advantage of the fact that we are divided. So my hope is that we can use that fact that, that experience of having an attack to say, okay, do we need, we need to have some, uh, uh, both a national project, like as important as the moonshot, to try to build divisions between people. You know, 80% of Americans think that um, we're too divided. But so what are we doing about it? So yes, we need philanthropy and we need big institutions to try to attack that. But the good news is, is that through projects like the uh, White Ally Toolkit, or again, Ally Conversation Toolkit, both .com, same one, uh, you know, Ally Conversation Toolkit.com, White Ally Toolkit.com is the same place. Projects like that, are about empowering individuals and what they can do to heal these divides. And so I think that, yes, while, while we try to push for institutions to have big efforts to disseminate these skills, we can start, to, we can start today. And the good news is, is that if we can make some progress by using these skills or, teach, or learning how to talk to each other around the most intractable issue in American history, race, we can later on, we can also use these same methods on other issues. We have a big division in our country around environmental issues, around gun control. We could go down the list of, of issues. Well, these same methods of how to talk to each other can be used there too. And perhaps if we go at the hardest, one of the hardest issues, we can later on use those same skills of how to have a conversation on other issues and have a much less divided society. Absolutely. Creating effective encounters. I like that, David. The uh, the doc, Dr. Race Ally, Mr. Everything. <laughs> peace and harmony yeah, yeah. to the world. <laughs> if people want to find me on, on Twitter, it's at, it's, uh, at the dialogue guy. Uh, and uh, our, on, um, so that's, that's one place to find me. And the project is called the White Ally Toolkit. And uh, and I'd be I I, I I go around the country. I do these workshops. Like I said, people find them they find them engaging and and productive and powerful and practical. And also we have you know I have a I've written three books from this project. Right? So there's the there's a workbook. There's a White Ally Toolkit workbook. There's a discussion guide if people want to learn in a group because that's also good. I have something called the Compassionate Warrior Boot Camp, which is which is like a short document, like 90 pages. And basically it gives people a 20 minute a day instruction about basically how to, um, how to exercise their compassion muscle. And it, gets, it makes it progressively more complex over the course of the 28 days. And I recognize that people, even if people commit to 20 minutes a day, they, they can't really do it. That's why we, people write in the actual day because a boot camp day might take longer than a calendar day. Mm-hmm. But the idea is by the end of these 28 boot camp days, people have done some actual encounters with other people, first perfecting your relaxing, then perfecting your listening, then listening to people who disagree with you, then working on your stories to the point where they're using the whole method on racial topics, uh, specifically on unconscious bias um, by the end of the time. And so a lot of people are finding that's another route to the project. We have a video, we have a video course uh, that is a, uh, is an introduction to all this where you see me lecturing in an actual, uh, you know, in the workshops we've done. It's really good. And, and I've watched, you know, you can go and watch all of this at allyconversationtoolkit.com. David, you have you had any big surprises in encounter, in all of these encounters? Um, 
Yeah, like uh, uh, I, I, it brought a tear to mind when I got a note um, from somebody who uh, watched, in addition to that, the video thing, I said, we have a, a smaller uh, webinar called the um, uh, Holiday Survive and Thrive thrive seminar because basically you know a whole bunch of whole bunch of folks especially white folks go home and they, they have these divided divided setting and so one woman we sell that for ten dollars so one woman wrote me a note saying how i watched your survive and thrive webinar and i went home and my encounter with my dad was totally different and it, we you know we were able to talk about things i didn't i, I used the methods you talked about i i calmed down first i ask questions. And we had a totally different encounter. You have made my Thanksgiving. And so getting those kind of notes is really, really encouraging and makes me feel like, okay, this is really onto something. Yes, we've touched 5,000 people, but it's really, I don't get as much feedback as I would like, but you know, the marketplace gives you certain feedback, but hearing from people is really, really empowering. Yeah. One last question. Why do you do this? What the, well, you know, everybody says, what is the why behind why I do this business? Why do you do this business, David? Um, I uh, think that <clears throat> if we're going to build the kind of society we want, um, it's, it's really important that people have the skills of making connections. And that's not something we're necessarily taught. We're not taught, uh, we're not taught those dialogue skills. Like my, you know, I grew up in Detroit where a racially divided time. Uh, my parents are from that uh, greatest generation, which did not learn how to talk to each other. They love each other madly, but they don't, they, they, they were not dialogue people. And so there was a fair amount of squabbling in their, in their house that I think that they both didn't like, or didn't know how to do it any better. And so I think that from an early age, I've become very committed to the power of dialogue to turn moments of conflict into moments of connection. And so ultimately, uh, given um, the, the, the divisiveness in society and how we, we often tend to run to our separate corners. If we're going to have a coherent society that includes everybody, we've got to learn how to talk. And so I'm just very committed to trying to spread those skills. Why is diversity so important in business? Well, it's well known that actually if you, uh, if you have more diversity and, um, and manage it well, you do better. Like there's a, so when I do unconscious, I do unconscious bias uh, trainings. And um, one of the things that I talk about is there was a study that was done of Fortune, of, of, of like 400 companies in the Fortune 2000, and they compared ones, they compared groups that had the highest level of diversity in the C-suite, like the C-suite and the board, versus ones in the low, at the lowest level. That sort of they divided all the companies up into quintiles, and the top quintile versus the lowest quintile, and the top quintile companies did better on profitability. So they, they, they weren't just better on a social justice norm. They were actually more effective on the bottom line measures that stockholders care about, the shareholders care about. So basically, if you can manage diverse, if you have diversity, if you have more diversity and manage it well, you will do better. You'll make better decisions. You'll, you'll be more responsive to your customers. You'll, you'll be more creative. So you'll be, ultimately be more effective. So not only is it important for us to build a society where everybody is, has a stake in it, you actually will do better if you do that. And so, so <laughs> what so do you call that? You do well by doing good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> David, thank you so much. It's always a joy to speak with you. And as long as I do this, you're going to be on my roster. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Don't forget.
forget to please subscribe to the show. I really appreciate your listening, but a subscription would mean everything to me. And please rate and review. Also, follow me on social media at Facebook, IG, Twitter, LinkedIn, and go and check out all of my shows and a bunch of good, fun stuff over there, even my comedy, at Rolanda Watts channel on YouTube. Yes, at Rolanda Watts on social media and at Rolanda Watts channel on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening to Rolanda On Demand today. I hope you really enjoyed that conversation and got some really good takeaways from it. Things that you can use right now in terms of bettering communication with the tough topic of race. Look, our country is so divided right now, and these conversations crop up. And look, peace starts with you and me. So if we have tools and tactics to help us keep it calm, be able to relate, and transfer a good story and experience to bring us closer together, well, then I say, let's do it. Thank you to David Compt and to Wayne Lindsay for our beautiful music. And also, while I'm thinking about it, don't forget to sign up for some of my free webinars coming up. I am exploring the art of reinvention. You know I've done it 50 million times. So there are a lot of people in a pivot position right now trying to find the next thing. And I want us to talk about it so you can have some other kinds of tools and tactics for your success as well. Thank you so much again for listening. Now go out there and do something good. Thank you for listening to C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.